When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the meeting of the almost gray, peppery beards. We're not gray beards yet, but we're all getting there. Yeah, I'm working on COVID, it. COVID, COVID's done that to me pretty much, I would say. Oh, no. Yeah. I, know, I look at videos like from 20, well, this flood and COVID. So look at videos from like 2019 and it's like, it's all brown and I'm like losing my hair. It's all gray. So, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So nice to meet you, James. Pleased to meet you too. Yeah. You guys haven't uh, interacted before. We had some email, but that's it. Yeah, I think so. Or just, I think, just through Twitter a little bit. But I mean, obviously, I've been following what you've been doing from the beginning. And uh, I think I think what I really appreciate of your work is that you're one of the few people that criticize what's going on that have actually that has actually read the books and understands, you know, both the, the, the let's say, the origins of things like CRT and the in, in the thinker, the Marxist thinkers, like post-war Marxist thinkers, but then also how it feeds into postmodernism, And so, so your critique is a lot better than, um, than let's say, what's his name, Hicks, with his understanding postmodernism, which I don't think he really totally understands postmodernism. So no, it's been great. He understands Rousseau very well, though. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's been good. It's been good to, to, to see someone kind of take on what's happening and, and expose it, uh, and uh, but I've been really curious about, let's say, because I propose a solution. I mean, my I propose a solution which is, in a certain manner, an, a narrative solution. It's related to postmodernism to a certain extent, which is that we can't avoid living in stories, we can't avoid living in narratives, and to a certain extent, we also can't avoid living in hierarchies. Although I don't see that as necessarily negative. Um, and the question, the 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 solution I propose is. A kind of reinterpretation or reengagement with Christian tradition, and and kind of diving into that story and seeing it as a, a backbone that kind of ho- that's going to pull us through as much as possible. Um, but I think in in your case, I don't like. I felt like you understand the problem super <clears throat> well, but I haven't yet gotten a sense of what you think the solution is. Well, we can talk about that uh, for the lovely audience. Are we talking for the lovely audience? I don't know. Are we, Benjamin? Benjamin you know that. Are we not always? Are we not or always? I, I did I want mean, to this point isn't out. time for Socratic rhetoric. It's time for answering a simple question. I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that what Socratic uh, rhetoric is? But You're doing it again, Benjamin. Jonathan, you, you said specifically Christian tradition, not necessarily Christian theology, but I think there's important, uh, important, I just want to highlight that you, you said tradition that, that might have more room for more access for more ways of thinking than just like saying Christian theology. I just want to point that out, but I don't know if you... Uh, yeah, I think it's important because I see it's not just about ideas, it's about embodied embody practices and also it's about communal relationships and i think that's where that's that's where a lot of the the these the activism is strong is because it understands that human beings exist through relationships and and relationships of power and of and of identity which is something that is just inevitable but they weaponize it to a weird kind of upside down satanic uh version of it 
uh, and I think I think that if we just go back to just rationalism, we're gonna we, we can't we, there's no solution because you know the way that I live in my family that I live in my community is not only through it's through shared memory, shared story, shared ritual, shared practice, uh, and and obviously shared belief as well. But that it's not just shared belief, which is why I, I wouldn't say just Christian theology. So seriously, are we on the air? Yeah. Well, we're not live, but we are recording. <laughs> okay. So. And you don't have to cut that out because I think it's charming. I but think it is. okay. So I didn't want to like just get off on some tangent before we get started. And yeah, we like, don't have to. We can because I can't ever say anything like great the second time. And so yeah, so I've been thinking a lot. I don't know what a solution looks like. I do think there needs to be some kind of a cultural renewal. In fact, I think there's got to be a two pronged approach, which is in a sense that we have the house is on fire right now. So we need very practical things done to put the fire out and to rescue who can be rescued from the danger and then the immediate danger. And then we need to, at that point, start assessing as if we use the building on fire metaphor, why did the building catch on fire? How can we rebuild the building? How, when we rebuild the building, do we rebuild the building such that it's not so easy to catch on fire again? You know, these are the kinds of questions. And, you know, obviously this is very metaphorical. Um, I'm obviously quite drawn lately, partly because of my spheres of influence uh, in the opposite direction, the spheres in which I am embedded, not in which I have influence, uh, largely running around with Calvinists. Uh, meeting a lot with Catholics to hear different Christian perspectives. I'm reading Marxism as a theology, and so I agree um, that there's something unique in the Judeo-Christian, both theology, actually, and the traditions that spring from it uh, that is necessary. I also believe that you are correct that one of the things that the Marxists have very successfully done is to weaponize the relational nature of human existence— in fact, they try to make it where the relational nature of human existence is the only part of human existence and turn the whole theological construct, uh, which is Christianity turned on its head. It's actually very easy to read. Um, you know, the, it's an inversion of the story in Genesis. It's an inversion of this story. It's an inversion of that. It's literally just turning the Christian story on its head. But the reason we see this inversion is because we're now favoring pathos, lived experience of lived realities as they're phenomenologically understood through the leftist dialectical frame that's been dominant for 200 years, and therefore we have this upside-down thing. So I think whatever the solution that we're going to have to build out of this is going to look like is going to have to be one that does what Christianity very successfully did, which was to build a set of traditions, community, um, relations, rituals, uh, everything out of a view that puts the order of the universe, or logos, as the sovereign against which uh, we can't get around. And I know I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but I know that um, this is a big theme because if we read the leftist literature, for example, if we read Kelly Oliver from 1989, who Alan Sokol made famous by quoting her on this, she says that the goal of their theories, so at this point feminist theory in the late 1980s, was to no longer be concerned with true and false. Uh, truth and false, but rather with, with strategic operational success. And she says that the goal of that is, and I mean, we can look it up and read the exact quote. She says that we've come to a point where we no longer need to be concerned with true theories and false theories of the world, but with strategic theories that achieve operational goals. And then she says that the chief operational goal is to get around the absolute 
um, sovereignty of recalcitrant nature. In other words, to be able to remake the world mm-hmm. according to our strategies, instead, which is what Marx called humanizing the world, uh, as opposed to, um, you know, putting ourselves in, humil- in, in a, a position of humility before what is and according ourselves with that, which, uh, by the way, Marx said is what animals do and what makes humans human is that we're, we're change agents, that we can transform the world rather than just react to it and live with it as it is. Yeah, that's interesting because I noticed you did uh, you made a tweet recently about the Promethean nature of Marxism and how there's a sense in which there really is this revol- I mean it's a revolutionary thinking brought to its end, right? It but because revolutionary thinking is right there already I think it, that's where maybe we probably will disagree is that I think revolutionary and Promethean thinking is there already in the enlightenment. Uh, and that it increases and it accelerates. And you could say that it devolves to a point where, let's say, something which at first is seen as just the, let's say, the enlightened being reaching up and grabbing something to modify the world with, you know, devolves into ultimately, you know, the trolls coming out of the ground and, you know, just destroying everything and taking over, which are which are actually images that I pointed to that Marx uses. He he uses this dark, really dark imagery of uh, of these monsters and of these these beings that are almost underground that kind of rise up and and take over uh, civilization. It's like uh, Lord of the Rings uh, inverted or something. Like yeah, they, like awakening the Balrog. He would have he would have cheered for the for the Balrog and for the the orcs and and whatnot. Um, and so that, but I don't know what you think about that, that there's something already in, in enlightenment thinking, which is, which is the, this notion that, for example, like even the notion that we're going to be saved through technology, which is something which I think Pinker also seems to, to uh, be tied to, there's something already Promethean in that gesture, that it's not that we're going to be saved through, let's say, virtue or, the, or through through being all aligned towards the source of infinite love, but that we're going to be saved through re- reason is, let's say, reason on its own is seen in some ways as the sin of Satan. There are many, even in Paradise Lost, there's this sense in which it's actually the self-sufficiency of reason which leads to the fall because it's this idea that it's like, I can just grab this and put it to use and not realize the let's say the monster that i'm unleashing on the world and so that's the way that seems to be at least that's the way that i tend to see it i I tend to see the fall uh the beginning of the fall coming before in the enlightenment already being there already enlightenment in this type of the type of arrogance that you see in bacon and that you see in these these enlightenment type figures thinking that they can master the world thinking that they can dominate on on reality and then marx is the opposite marx ends up being well he he continues down the revolution but now it's constantly lower and lower until it just becomes you know basically the dirt trying to take over for the from the light or trying to cover the light completely yeah it's funny by the way that you said an inverted not to distract from the important point but since you said the inverted lord of the rings i just saw something yesterday that apparently they refer to zuckerberg in facebook as the eye of sauron and then he thinks that's a compliment. And so it's like, well, here we are. Um, he's like, no, it's about it's about power. And it's all and it is in, in the end all about power. And you can right. see like the worship of power already in the Renaissance with Machiavelli and these types of figures that you already kind of see this inkling where 
like you said, in terms of when you talk about feminist theory as being about how to implement transformations, I mean, what, we, what we're talking about is power. And Derrida ultimately came to that himself, talking about forces, saying that, that there are forces of interpretation and that these, these are what are being negotiated. We don't have the sense of truth anymore, but only of force, like strength, different strengths that pull on, on each side, you know. So that it, it, it seems like that's ultimately this kind of brute force uh, is what is coming out of Marxism. Sure, yeah. Um, so I'm actually probably more pro-enlightenment than you are by yeah, a fair I'm measure. Yeah, sure, but that's okay. Um, we can still talk. Yeah, I'm pretty pro-enlightenment. And so I, I do frame the enlightenment a little bit differently. I understand the enlightenment a little bit differently. And I can understand kind of what you're pointing at. Um, what I see the enlightenment, at, and I do, I mean, you do see a certain arrogance, whether it's Bacon or whether it's Newton or something, that's certainly there. And this idea that you can master the world, I, especially when I look at the way, now, of course, we're looking at the enlightenment in a variety of domains. There's kind of a scientific enlightenment that's kind of an epistemological or knowledge frame, intellectual frame. There's a, a economic enlightenment. And that's where, you know, a lot of people, this is a favorite talking point of my friend. Uh, you guys probably know Vivek Ramaswamy, but he likes to point out that 1776 was the year of the Declaration of Independence, but it was also the year of wealth of nations. And so we have this kind of economic enlightenment happening and we have this political enlightenment happening at the same time uh, with kind of the the declaration and this kind of Scottish enlightenment and the Lockean view of uh, property rights and politics, which, by the way, the property rights were for Marx, the enshrinement of the division of labor and the enshrinement division of labor is what marks the fall, according to Marx, out of the garden, um, just to kind of bring that in. But I see the Enlightenment in a couple of different ways, one of which is actually by adapting the Marxian frame, and I've spoken with Benjamin about this before. Um, and another is that I see it as having been equipping ourselves with a variety of tools um, that don't necessarily tell us what our disposition toward those tools are. And so our disposition toward the tools of, say, coming to understand the world can be one of arrogance that we can come to understand the world in order to master it, or it can be one of more humility, which is that we can come to understand the world in order that we can accord ourselves with it more successfully. Uh, and then interestingly enough, Christianity throws this kind of, um, solution to this problem in since we've already invoked that, which is that according to Genesis, we're appointed as stewards of the world. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, the steward is not the king, going back to Lord of the Rings. It is not the steward's role to to order the kingdom as he will. It's to govern in the king's absence. And so, obviously, the Logos or Christ is set up as the king in Christianity and is absent. And in the king's absence, man is the steward of the world. So God is absent from the world in some way. Uh, and so we're stewards. But to do responsible stewardship, we have to be, A, in full understanding of the world that we are stewards over, but also we have to be oriented in a disposition of humility where it's not ours to master. It never was ours to master. It's God's world. It's Christ's kingdom. And it's only ours to try to order as best we can to un in, in the in the comprehension of what is intended in that by by that ordering of the world. And so the disposition of humility versus arrogance, you can read the, the arrogance of somebody like Bacon, and you can get this idea that contained within enlightenment is the idea of reaching up and picking the apple for yourself uh, and thus recreating the fall. 
but you can also see it uh, rather as using the gifts that we have with intellect, reason, um, ethical thought, all of these different capacities to understand, better understand the world that we live in and ourselves within it, and thus come up with strategies for that stewardship model, which, again, for me, this just boils down to, are we arrogant enough to believe that by one means or another, we can make the world what we want it to be? Or are we largely subject to the world that there is something bigger and grander than ourselves that we are, we are utterly humiliated before, whether that's God, whether that's just the enormity of the world itself. Um, you know, so many of our things that we attempt, like a great reset, don't go so well, um, because that arrogance doesn't work out. And so I don't see the Enlightenment necessarily as having a dispositional claim built into it. Uh, certainly in all of those different domains, whether it's the kind of democratic Republican political sphere, uh, that's whether it's the economic sphere, where both of those are basically based off of what are property rights and how do we secure them for people, whether it's the intellectual sphere. The second one, or the first one that I mentioned, though, where I see the Enlightenment, this is where I've readapted the Marxian historicist frame. Marx, of course, says that, you know, you have this primordial communism, which would have been good if everybody was in on it together, but everybody was estranged from one another. And then People started to enslave one another, and so you entered into a slave economy system. Then you entered into a rearrangement of this where you had landowners, capital holders, in a sense, in a earlier um, frame that were aristocrats who ran feudal estates. And the estate economy is what he calls the third stage. And then the fourth stage is capitalism where, in a sense, everybody is their own small feudal lord or their own their own property holder everybody has their, their, their little bit of property but in reality what there is is an overarching system whereby the aristocrats kind of stay the aristocrats in a different and they exploit in a different way and that's capitalism and then socialism and communism come down the track and what i perceive in it, it you know there's a lot of analysis that suggests that socialism is actually a step backwards to a new aristocracy where the former losers become the new aristocrats, and then that devolves into slavery eventually, and eventually you're, you're supposed to get communism out of this, where now the entire globe doesn't need a government, and we're all working together kumbaya. And um, what I see is the information economy that we've existed in is very similar. Uh, I don't want to go so far back as to go primordial with it, but we could. We're kind of a total mystification and order of the world and nobody questions it and everybody's happy and then you kind of move into one that's that's tantamount to slavery which is basically the magisterial model which would be we would call the pre-modern model and then what i would say is that the modernism or modernity modernism not correct but modernity that period following the late medieval through roughly the present the emergence of postmodernism and high technology information age changes that uh, actually indicates the third stage of information history so it's lagging one step behind political and economic development, and that if we're going to adopt the stage model, the, sta the historicist staging model of history, and so what we've had is experts, we've had universities, we've had media mouthpieces that work. They're like intellectual property holders, literally, like Disney right now. How do we break down Disney for being groomers? Well, you take away their copyrights. That's how, and the, you know, so you remove their ability to hold massive amounts of intellectual property. Uh, indefinitely. And so you bring that back into the economy of information in a different way. So what's gone on then was what we call the Enlightenment was actually the transition out of the second magisterial phase 
where the church declared this is what we're going to do, and you either did it or at some point you're getting burned at the stake, right? And so it's like information slavery. You don't have any options. The masters tell you what you're going to believe, the end. So we have this revolution in thought. We call this the Enlightenment, and it actually entered into an information aristocracy where institutions like universities and media, et cetera, became the dictators, the, the new the new information property holders that tell us how we're going to understand the world. And now I believe that we're actually in a second enlightenment. And I've argued this at length. I've spoken with Benjamin about this. We're now in a second enlightenment where the marketplace of ideas, which we have falsely believed existed, it was more like the mercantile or whatever of ideas, the mm -hmm. uh, mercantilist market of ideas. Now we're opening into an actual free market of ideas through information technology. Um, and so we're going through the, the trials and tribulations that come along with entering into a new phase of information history. And in that regard, not only do I not think that the, I don't think the Enlightenment was like the seed of its own demise, I think it was just to borrow from the historicist thinking that maybe I shouldn't, that it was an earlier stage in the development of human communication and organization than we thought it was uh, up until this point. And so, of course, it wasn't, it was setting up an aristocracy but out of a form of slavery. So now we haven't even experienced information freedom yet. We don't even know what it looks like. We haven't even put the boundaries on it. And so when we start talking about solutions or solutions looking forward, need to look at the question of, okay, we're in 1770. We're reorganizing the entire world. Wealth of nations has not been written. But here we are looking at the internet the way that Adam Smith was looking at America mm -hmm. and saying, what's going on here? What makes this work? We're looking at America the same way that Alexa de Tocqueville was looking at America and saying, what's going on here? And so the information freedom of the Internet has opened. It's like the American continent has been partially colonized. Something's going on. Something that works is going on. But there are all these challenges. And obviously the crown, George isn't, King George is not happy about it. And so, so that's like Zuckerberg with his eye of Sauron is like, King George in this. And so we haven't, we're, we're in the, if, if we're, again, to borrow Marxian language, we're in the pre-revolutionary moment where the conditions are becoming ripe for that revolution to spill over into the next phase. Uh, but no. And the dying power is grasping. Yeah. Uh, Sauron's reaching out his dark shadow of a hand over the land. And is he going to grab it or is he going to miss? Mm-hmm. The concept uh, of revolution, Jonathan, you have uh, you have a definition of it. I hear a different kind of definition of it. So, like, just to get really, really simplistic, there was the French Revolution and the American Revolution. There was two different types of challenges to the powers that be. And one opened up possibility. The other one, I guess, eventually opened up possibility, but had to spill a whole bunch of blood. And, Jonathan, sometimes when you talk about revolution, it seems like you have a... You stress yeah, the my, negative I side mean, of my, it. The way that I understand revolution, especially in uh, especially in the modern world, is is the notion of something from below grabbing power from something that is above them. Whether or not whether or not those the 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 way that it structures is legitimate or not, it's that you it's the people from below taking authority for themselves, you could say, and then taking it down onto them. And I think that that. You know, if you see it already in the the story of the of of the the, the cosmogony of of Hesiod, you you get that notion that when you do that, it creates a cycle of illegitimacy, and that you you're always in trouble when you do that. But if you castrate the father, then 
you're opening yourself up to get castrated yourself because your authority came from your father. Your authority comes from your father. So if you kill your father, then your kids are coming for your balls. Like it's just so, inevitable that that's going to happen. So it's, it's actually about a structure of, of reality that, that, that authority, let's say authority has a certain way of laying itself out. And if we mess with that, then we create these cycles of, of revolutions. And the cycles of revolutions appear because one of the problems of illegitimate authority is that it has to become tyrannical by the very means of being illegitimate. And if, you, if someone takes power and then they have, to, they have to crush those below them because those below them are now coming for their authority as well. Um, and, and so, I mean, an interesting way of seeing it and I don't know, James, if you if you know a little bit about Vedantic theory of the caste system, it's very politically incorrect to talk about the caste system. But if you understand the, the the basic Varna, like the basic caste system, not the economic caste system, but just the spiritual caste system that exists in India, they have a sense in which the world is structured through spiritual authority, which has no political power, is the highest. And then they have political th authority, which takes their power from the spiritual authority, but then they have, a, they have power in the world, but their power is grounded in those that are above them that don't have physical power. And then below them, you have the mercantile caste, which, which is protected by the, it has to serve the interests of the aristocracy to a certain extent, because if it doesn't, then, you know, they're going to get clamped down and also they'll lose their protection because they're not supposed to have weapons themselves. Like they're not supposed to, to be knights or to be, uh, and then below that you have like the servant class, let's say, that that is the people. You also have the peasants and the people and all of that that are basically working. Um, and so there's this theory, right, in the Vedantic system, which is that the political class, they they don't they get annoyed to having to submit to these these spiritual people that are telling them how to live and what their values are and what God says. And so they want to take that for themselves. So they'll do something like create na national churches or they'll, they'll, they'll submit the, the, the spiritual power to their, to their level. But then once they do that, then they have the problem of the gods in, in, in Hesiod's cosmogony, which is that if you, if you kill the thing that gives you power, gives you authority, then you become more tyrannical because you know that now the, now the merchants are going to come for you. Now the merchants are going to want to kill, chop the heads off the, the aristocrats because you crush the church. And then once you do that, then, then here comes the peasants and the workers because they ultimately thought that all this was grounded in God. And now that they know that it's not, or they, they, they believe that it's not, then why would I trust all these people that are above me? And so it's like this devolution of power. And it, the, the sense you get is that Marx seems to get it right, but upside down. Like he, he actually understands a basic structure of that. And, but it's really the idea that the peasants have to rise up and take. So that's why, in a way, it's Promethean because, or not just Promethean, just basically in the Greek, the Greek cycle of gods, it really is the idea that it starts with the castration of the father. And so that's why I see revolution. And so, for example, like what you described in terms of this information age. So you always have to see it as a dual position where this revolution that you're talking about has both in it the absolute freedom of this marketplace of ideas and of and everything, but it also has within it the an absolute tyranny, the likes of which we've never seen before. And those two things are almost like uh, 
they are they cause each other because because you need the let's say information without hierarchy doesn't first of all it can't exist it, it it has to be kind of organized in a hierarchy because our attention is necessarily hierarchical and the question is who's going to manage that who's going to tell us what's important or who's going to help us see what's important and who's going to weaponize that like you said because once you realize it before you have information you have something like attention something like value virtue things that are more important you know then you can weaponize that to your to your ends let's say so I, I feel like what we're seeing, so it's like I, I get it that we're on the verge of, of blockchain and of all these things which feel like they're going to, to, to bring about a decentralized you know, network of, of communicating, people that communicate and share information and knowledge. And, but you can see, right, like you said, the Eye of Sauron at the same time. So you have to understand like in the Lord of the Rings that Sauron con controls the orcs. It's like... The, the, there's the it's about extremes it's about how the orcs want to be free and to do whatever they want and then sauron controls them and that's the it's like it's like i, I would say it's like punk rock can't exist without absolute systems of control because without it you wouldn't even have that type of freedom so the, this pendulum just swings larger and larger and so i to me the the solution has to be more like uh, right attention or I mean right. I, I know that it's not I don't I don't I'm not an ideologue like I don't think that it's going to happen like I don't think that we're gonna all of a sudden see like saints rise up and and like you know you know or, or something like that I don't, I don't think it's going to happen but I I without that I do see that the, this revolution that you're talking about is going to lead the same mechanism that leads to blockchain is going to lead to the centralized digital currency by the way it's the same people doing it like I was explained by by someone recently, uh, one of these these uh, um, Bitcoin gurus, that the people who programmed set up Bitcoin are the same people hired by the government to set up the central uh, digital currency, and so it's like the systems the systems kind of play themselves out. No, I hear you, and you're right. This is uh, there is that um, heaven hell dichotomy uh, the the freedom versus per, like total for or new new levels i'll say, say of, of freedom versus total tyranny uh the likes of which we've never seen in the moment and of course that is enabled by technology um uh, i would say that to that of course that this is one of the the gifts since we kind of started with the idea of contextualizing christianity to the present moment that, that christianity gives you can't exactly castrate god as Christianity conceives of it, yeah. right? And so there is a transcendent sovereign that is identified, again, with Logos, with the order and structure of the world, to which he spoke and gave existence, according to the Bible. And that that, you, that authority follows from there. All authority, as if you talk to Christians, they will tell you, all authority follows from there. And so this problem of revolution uh, has to follow what Marx says, which is to cast down God before any of that can occur. Mm -hmm. Because it's if you if you buy the theology, it is impossible to castrate that which is transcendent to this world. It's not in this world to castrate. It's not like you're looking at the Brahmin caste and saying, "Well, I know who they are. Those are people with addresses." And mm -hmm. uh, how convenient that I'm the sword wielding caste and know exactly how this works. And like, put your dukes up, priest. Let's see what comes Let's next. See how much you can defend yourself. Yeah, and so you, when 
when you hierarchize, I can't say words sometimes, yeah, yeah. up against um, up against something that's a transcendence as the, the source of all authority. And then you say that that thing is the logos, which is this ordering principle. And then we get very Jordan Peterson-ish and say, well, what it, that means is, can you do the job? Kind of a very Christian pragmatist sort of view. Can you do it? That, in other words, merit becomes a a basis, like a, a worldly reflection. I don't do so much with with Vedantic thought, but I do a lot more with Taoist thought. So you have your pre-heaven and post-heaven uh, formulations. You know, heaven is the sun, and the fire is the worldly representation thereof. Um, and so you have your pre-heaven and worldly uh, interpretations of things. So here, merit and character become kind of your guideposts to tell you kind of what the the authentic the, what the authoritative hierarchy looks like then you know you have a system that's not quite this this is what john uh, what benjamin was saying a second ago uh, about you have a revolutionary system that's not quite the same thing it's not just people from below seizing power from those above it's people trying to, in fact, decentralize. So decentralize those kinds of decisions. It's not going to be King George who's going to order my life anymore. I'm going to order my life. And how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to create a republic, if we can keep it, madam. And we're going to create a republic in which we've now devised a system of government through the thought of the Scottish Enlightenment with divided powers. So it's a form of decentralization, da-da-da-da-da. And so what... It comes down to, for me then, when we have this choice between this total calamity, possibly, or total slavery, versus this kind of new horizon of human freedom, um, I, I almost go to, to to Foucault to the degree that Michel Foucault was right about things, where now we get into our postmodernism, um, which, you know, is not completely. Foucault was, no, I, was I, not I, completely I, right. I was but he says, these, uh, so, you know, it's like, so, I, I, I'm not, I don't think they're completely, I, there's value in some of their thought, for sure. Sure. So you, you raised the question specifically, though, of, you know, we enter into this new uh, kind of information, hierarchy, uh, information universe, decentralized information, maybe, if we want. And then the question becomes, you know, you said, well, who's going to hierarchize the information for us because we have to engage in the information through hierarchy. And I say, no, let's play, let's put our Michel Foucault post-structuralist hat on for a second and say, the question is not who is going to do this. The question is, how are we going to decide who gets to do this? Mm-hmm. Because what I'm saying is that the the aristocracy that we've been in, the systems of you went to college and you kissed the right butt and you went to the right cocktail party and you diddled the right person at Harvard or whatever it happens to be. And now you're the authority or you're whatever the hell it is that Bill Gates apparently did to where he can talk to us about literally everything. And we all have to apparently listen to him or, you know, LeBron James, because he can throw a basketball is somehow a friggin' expert in China policy or whatever, which happens to be paying his ginormous salary. Um, you know, this system is corrupt as hell. This this system, like the Catholic Church before it, rose up to a point where laws of convenience and human corruption and whatever you want to add into it created it. It's now selling indulgences or selling carbon credits and all of this. The thing is totally bogus, and people are recognizing that it's bogus. So the question isn't how isn't 
who gets to decide how we prioritize information. It's how do we choose the people who get to decide. And so I come back to a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And so the solution that enabled a quarter millennium of success or most of a quarter millennium of success through the previous revolution was establishing the concept of a republic. Within this now free, we didn't go to a free, wild, hootin' tootin' democracy in 1776 mm-hmm. or 1789, whichever year you want to pick, or the years in between those as they worked it out. 1789 is really, I guess, the relevant year. We didn't go to this, like, freewheeling, like, democracy. That would have been a disaster. The Greeks understood that a democracy is a disaster. I always like to make the Greek pun, and I don't think it's really a Greek pun, but demos, like the public, and demos with an I in it, like, panic like the moon of, of Mars, you know, it's the same, almost, it's the same sound to the roots. Uh, they knew that a, a free democracies, they came up with this concept of a republic. What is a republic? Well, it is a means of choosing through, it turned out they used a democratic election method to choose, but it's a means of choosing the people whom to whom we're going to bestow that political authority for a time. And so the same kind of structure to have, if, let me, let me put it this way. If we have moved into a parallel or if we're moving into an information era that's in parallel to the political era that we moved into at the end of the 18th century and the structure that worked for the that, that solved the question of political legitimacy in that 18th century paradigm was whatever a republic or a democratic republic represents, we don't have that structure in that information era yet, but something like that probably works. So the question where Foucault was quite perceptive then is the question of who gets to decide what's true and false, what political process is used to decide truth and falsity becomes more relevant than what is more interesting, he's, he believed, than what is it that we regard as true and false? And is that which we regard as true actually true even? He says, no, it's what matters is the question of, of, of legitimacy and authority, which yeah. is a question of politics and how that person's decided. And so it looks like something more decentralized, whether it's through, you know, crypto, which I totally understand that Crypto is is maybe going to work, and it might be the biggest mistake humanity's ever made, because centralized central bank digital currencies are are the one ring. It's right. the end. Yeah, that, that is giving Sauron the one ring. That's right. If they if they pull those off, and then you know Minas Tirith falls, and many fair things definitely fade, and all of these different things. But I don't know how we enter like we've had for two hundred years a expert designating process that's now viewed as illegitimate. Just like before that, within the church, there was an expert designating process that became viewed as illegitimate. And getting the answer to that question right is the path forward. And it has something to do, I think, with setting the logos as sovereign and not cutting its balls off with the rest of (laughs) postmodern philosophy. So let me throw throw a wrench into what you're saying. Well, not a wrench, but let me frame it in a different way, like maybe in a non-political way, because I, I also believe that the solution is not a political one. It, and it, this is going to sound corny when I first say it, but please bear with me. So I think it has more to do with worship, ultimately. That's the, that's the key. That is, it's about what is your highest value and what is, like you said, or, but, it, but it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not just something that goes on in your head. It has to be something that you practice. That is, worship is is very important because it 
It's about attention. It's about what is the thing that we give our highest attention to. And in the Christian sense, it's not just logos, by the way. It really is the, the notion of God is also beyond logos. Logos is the means by which the infinite, you know, manifests itself in the world, right? That, that the world was created uh, by God through the sun and that the sun is the means by which the world exists. But there's also a sense of, of, of infinite wonder and infinite mystery be, hiding behind the, 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 the logos. Um, and that right, the vacant holy of hope. Of holies. Yes, exactly. This idea of like the the divine the divine darkness, you know, the divine emptiness. So this this something this is that which is beyond that which can be named or that which can be. Which, by the way, Derrida also kind of points to sometimes. He tries to kind of get to it in his later work. Um, so the, for me, that's the that's really the solution. So if you look at let's say in the Catholic Church, the way that it would work, and the Catholic Church would constantly get corrupted. All the time. It's not like when the Reformation happened. It was the first time that the Catholic Church became absolutely corrupt. It was constantly getting absolutely corrupt. But because even though they were corrupt, they all recognized, at least in theory, what their highest value was, which was love, which was charity, you know, love of neighbor, care for the poor, all these things. When they wouldn't do it, at some point, it would lead to the demise through uh, a saint, through a monastic figure. That would appear and or a monastic order that would would embody that and that everybody would give their money to like just rush to give all their money to 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 the franciscans you know or or to depending on the time that it was happening um and then that order would also get corrupt and then it would it would change and so i think that to me that ultimately the mechanism although i think it's important it has to be rooted in worship it has to be rooted in all of us recognizing what the highest goods are, actively recognizing that. I think one of the things that made the America function was that although they didn't say it explicitly, implicitly they were still writing Christian worldview. They were, they were still sure. kind of writing out the Christian worldview, and they didn't totally understand that. They didn't, let's say, imbi Im they, they implicitly put it into their 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 documents and their thinking they didn't explicitly put it there and as the christian worldview ran out as the enlightenment plays itself out then the steam by which the machine was working stopped working and then the you know the 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 side effects of the system started to show themselves people started started to act in bad faith because any system can be destroyed if taken is if approached in bad faith like there is no sure. perfect system you know right and right right that, that's more the, that's why i'm that's why I'm so explicitly, it's not why, but it's one of the reasons you can understand why I'm so explicitly Christian, which is because I really do think that the solution to the political problem is worship. And right now it is like highest attention. You know, your story of the Catholic Church was the story of the Old Testament there, right? It's yeah. the same story. So you have the, the Israelites, they make a compact with God. And that's Abram becomes Abraham. And then one after another, they screw up, they fall away from God, they stop getting their spiritual priorities in order, a prophet arises and is like, hey, yokels, knuckleheads, come on, this is what we're, this is, your life sucks because you fell away, and then a renewal happens under the direction of the prophet, the prophet becomes a major Old Testament figure, and then here we go again, and then here we go again, and here so we go again. And so... Just to go back to the definition of revolution, there's a, Benjamin, another sense. James, James is trying to say he's a prophet. I'm just, I, I'm not. I'm definitely <laughs> a prophet. So you are my evangelist. <laughs> of my mom, so, or your mom. But I just wanted to tell you that, that the aspect of renewal to revolution, there's a different 
content to uh, a revolution that that's actually about a renaissance or a renewal. That 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 yeah, word we can we can we can two. just take those two words and kind of separate that so we can get to one word where we mean that there is a change. There there are moments of they, change and crisis that happen, and there's there's a choice that's made or a profit arises or a reorganization that can be called a revolution, but not the same revolution that you're saying that's about the destruction of the hierarchy. Because if you look at the way that the renewals happen in the Old Testament, it's a good example, which is that the renewals always manifest themselves as a return to the garden. And we often don't totally kind of understand it that way, but there's a sense in which Moses going up the mountain, going to the place where God will, you know, walk with him is him going back into the garden and now restoring the reality of the origin in a way that's adapted to the times that in which they are, right? And so you see the same thing with the the the, re, the reconstruction of the temple, where uh, yeah, there are these new books, you know, that are found and that are, but those books are meant to be a renewal. Like they're not meant to just to to completely de demolish what is there before and and uh, rebuild it from scratch or to 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 decry what was there before and replace it with a new thing. But it really is the sense that here is the mechanism by which we can return to the origin. Uh, and I think that, 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 like you said, Benjamin, there's a difference between, between, the, between those two. And maybe, James, that's what you're trying to do in terms of saying, look, we have this origin of America, and you're American. And this origin, you know, we don't have anything else for which America can exist by. Like, this is what America has to exist by. It's its origin. It's its constitution. It's all of this. And so can we reawaken the light that's in there and then reapply it in a way that is adapted to the world now, instead of this, like you, you know, like you can see in a lot of the this the woke type stuff where they really are trying to destroy it and to replace it with a a kind of socialist utopia or something. Well, yeah, it's like I see in, in America, believe it or not, because as an Americanist myself, it's going to sound like total heresy. America is largely irrelevant. The the America is the the fruit in a particular land of what was called the cause of liberty. And so the cause of liberty, if you read back in the works of this late 18th century and even the early 19th century, um, throughout most of the 18th century, actually, you read a lot of these people, the cause of liberty, the cause of liberty, the cause of liberty. And then the French Revolution, of course, because it threw in egalitarianism, screwed that right up um, as, you know, liberty, fraternity. And we translate it as equality, but it's egalitary and is so it it's equity is that what it's going closer on? to equity it's closer to equity yeah it <laughs> it's is. closer to equity i'm not going to say it's no equity. it's closer not to exactly equity. but it is a different concept. the way they understood it yeah but yeah so it's a little bit of both it's like a mixture and so um it's but it's a it is the cause of liberty the spirit of liberty which i think is in fact what you see throughout the bible throughout this Judeo-Christian, if you will, framework, which is why do we get kicked out of the garden in the first place? Because we we're given free will, which is even higher of an order than our happiness or whatever else, that, you know, our perfected state in the garden. And what is the renewal, repeated renewal story of the Old Testament and the redemption of the of the New Testament telling us? And then what are the, the even the epistles of Paul telling us repeatedly? It's that uh, we get we we have this choice, right? And when we choose badly, stuff's going to go really badly. And when we choose well, things can start going pretty good for a while until we get stupid and, and choose badly again. So you say this comes down to worship, and I don't think you're entirely wrong. And But but as far as America, there's a thing, not to drift too hard off of, of the divine, but there's a thing behind America. 
that's like the holy of holies behind it, which is the cause of liberty, the spirit of liberty, the idea that human freedom, not human equity, is the highest calling of what it means to be human. And the way that you achieve that is not through making everybody equal and uh, like Marx basically projecting, you know, he's laying on his couch, pay me to write, pay me to do useless things, pay me for my vulnerable narcissism. And, you know, what's wrong with you, uh, Friedrich Engels, when your poor wife died or not quite wife, almost wife, the woman you lived with in love for 20 years has died. And that sucks. Where's my money? You know, most of the letter. And so, you know, it's not that it's actually being able to venture to, to have a bit of your own and to venture it in life and see what you're going to do with it. And so when you say worship, I don't disagree. But for me, worship is an orientation of humility. And again, we like I said, we don't have within the Enlightenment or within a, if this is a second Enlightenment, we don't have a disposition built into that. It is a, a thing that's happening, an organizational hmm. shift in what, how we approach the world or understand the various components of the world or dimensions of, of life within the world, but there's not a disposition. And we have this choice between humility and arrogance. Uh, when you're humble, you're worshiping. When you're arrogant, you're deciding that, oh, I know how to order this myself. I know how to, to, to put the order into place. And so when you say that the answer is worship, you see that humility in the founding movement of America? Because you said the spirit of liberty. That I totally agree with. I think that the spirit of liberty cannot function without being submitted to something like love or charity, because then you end up having hard hierarchies. Like you have really hard hierarchies of, of skill and people in the dirt, like people who just end up in the dirt. And so there's a sense in which the, the, the spirit of humility, do you think that that's there in the American founding? Uh, yeah, I mean, it has to be because you have literal aristocrats writing all men are created equal. And what makes them equal is that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And so somehow, the imago dei, you have a literal aristocrat, Thomas Jefferson, working with other literal aristocrats, writing that these poor, including the slaves, these poor, absolutely disenfranchised people who at this point in history don't have the right to vote, they don't have suffrage because they're not landholders, etc., are somehow still men. They're somehow still equals with us. And what makes us equal is that we have certain inalienable rights. In other words, that we have certain uh, factors that contribute to our liberty as men. And so that humility and that charity is kind of built in there. I understand what you're saying about, you know, the kind of Ayn Rand you know, brutal hierarchy, galt gulch kind yeah. of disaster. It's, it's uh, even more than that because the idea of inalienable rights. I mean, it, I don't want to mess with that, you know, too much politically. But there's a sense in which even the idea of all these rights is Promethean in its structure, right? It's like these are my rights that I have. Whereas it's a in a in a more traditional Christian or even biblical world, you have a sense in which it's more about responsibilities. You know, and so the prophet would come to the rich and say, it's your responsibility to take care of the poor, right? St. John Chrysostom said, the reason for the rich are the poor. There's the reason why the rich exist are for the poor. And so there's a sense in which it's actually as you rise up in the hierarchy, it's your responsibility to give back down. That's how you act in the image of God. But it, with, with this, the situation of like these rights that we set up, we... I think the revolutionary tendency is in that is already in that way of thinking, which is like, these are my rights. I can take them for myself. 
these are what are, you know, are owed to me by reality itself. And I can stand here and like, let's say, uh, demand them, you know? And, and so there's a, there's a revolution, there is a revolutionary. And so the, I mean, I, I, it would be interesting to see the difference between the, the, the one who stands and says, my right is equity. And the one who said, says my right is Generosity. equality. Like what it no, is, but it's, what it is, but it's there. Equality. It's there. Yeah. Right. It's like, what does this mean to say all men are created equal um, and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights? What does this mean? It means what they're saying is you're not God. Who the hell are you to take my things? Like my the rights aren't complicated. Life, liberty and property. These aren't you don't have a right to a like, higher education. You don't have a right to medical treatment. You yeah. don't have a right for somebody to pay your bills. You don't have a right to be happy. Even you can only pursue happiness. Right. And so you don't have any you don't get much. They're pretty basic rights that you're you can't have your life taken from you, that you can't be imprisoned by somebody else uh, short of felonious behavior and that you can't um, be deposed of your property, which might be very modest or might be very grand in any sense, because the, the humility is who the hell are you and who the hell am I? Thomas Jefferson's the aristocrat writing the government. He could very easily have written, down with King George, I'm your king now, give me your stuff. But instead he said, no, who the hell am I? I can't take your stuff. I can't have, you might only have a little, you might have a lot, and I can't take it from you. And I can't kill you to get your stuff. And I can't imprison you because I didn't like how you acted or said or, or what you believed in particular. It was all about freedom of belief with the foundation of America in particular. Mm -hmm. So that humility was every single one of us here in this new experiment for the cause of liberty that we'll call the American experiment is uh, who the hell are you? It, and so the only, you know, the only thing that you can do is say, well, if something's taking these things from you, it's an act of God. It's something bigger than, than us. You know, we as American citizens or as free people on this earth don't have the authority to take from somebody else their life, liberty, or property. We're not talking, like I said, we're not talking about the right to be able to go have a gender reassignment surgery because you felt like you wanted one when you were 14 years old. This is not a fundamental right that, that was being uh, described in this situation. We're talking about life, liberty, and property, uh, very fundamental things, which comes from that orientation of, and I will address what's missing because there is something missing here. Um, and the, they were aware of this when they wrote it. And we have, I think, largely left and forgotten it. But uh, there was an orientation of humility because it's none of us, as any human being, landowner or not, slave or free, has the authority to deprive one another of these things. And uh, granted, with slavery, it was aspirational in 1776 or 1789 when they were writing these things. It was still aspirational, but that was the intended. There was actually explicitly the aspiration, and a lot of these guys were trying to figure out how do we undo slavery without pissing off the Southerners without whom we can't pull this off. And so what's missing? They did assume, however, that people would have the kind of – and they've said that they assumed that the moral mm -hmm. backbone that comes from individual people – choosing to have some system of worship that gives them that backbone to understand the world in this kind of enlightened, if you will, mature way, uh, has to be present. It has to be, in fact, maybe dominant, if not hegemonic. And so when you hear people cry out, this is a Christian nation, um, and, you know, they make various, I think, largely tortured arguments for that fact, for that claim, not a fact, uh, is that 
what they're appealing to is that that moral backbone and that genuine general disposition to kind of that Christian worship and Christian mindset and Christian orientation and the idea, like you said, not just of the Imago Dei, like I am as God so I can be a creator and do as I want, but I am as God, therefore it's my responsibility to bestow upon that which is below me uh, without arrogance, without selfishness, etc. But that was a general concept among most of the people, right? And so there was this idea that if the state isn't going to dictate your morality— which is really in large part what the First Amendment is about. If the state is not going to dictate your belief, your your moral core, your system of worship, then it's incumbent upon you, and they maybe took this too much for granted, to find something that orients you toward a North Star worth having. Uh, and at the time, they could generally trust that the vast majority of them were either Christian or Christian-inspired deistic philosopher types. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they didn't foresee the possibility that freedom of religion would lead to, you know, like just anything goes, basically, to, like a, right. new age, a new age hodgepodge of chaotic chaotic beliefs. Or even the Marxist belief that, that society is, in fact, that which produces man, but society in turn is the product of man. And so that you have this kind of totally different ontology of, of, of humanity that then gets a talos of perfecting that cobbled onto it, uh, which is basically Marxism and as a theology in a nutshell. It's really that simple. He says, you know, man creates society and the social conditions of society are what shape and determine man. And so man creates society, creates man, creates society in this kind of cycle, which is happening unconsciously until we come up with the Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus and with scientific socialism, then we see the purpose of humanity is actually to humanize man, humanize the world, humanize society, so that it all becomes kind of this Hegelian ideal in the material world. Um, and, you know, they didn't foresee that religion <laughs> arising and conquering and, and filling in where, you know, yeah. maybe millions of people would believe that if I can imagine it, it's mine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. And so, I mean, I think that in a way it's funny because I think we kind of, we probably end up agreeing to a certain extent because I would say that although I think there's some issues with the formulation, let's say of the, of the, of the constitution in terms of rights, I think it's not bad because it is, there is in a manner in which it, it's also not, like I said, it's not a democracy. It has non democratic elements to it that provide stability. It does have an appeal to, 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 to the people at the same time. And it has a fractal structure, which I think is probably one of the reasons why it was so successful for a very long time. That is that it functions at different levels of, of, you know, so like the president has authority to, at a certain level, and then his authority actually doesn't go all the way down the hierarchy into the into the common the common world. So you have levels, you have governors, you have different representatives that that help make a kind of more fractal structure, which is usually the way that something is more is more resilient. And so there's there's definitely some genius in in the in the, but I think that it has to be, I think it has to be recognize that it has to be grounded in something higher that it has to be grounded in something which will transcend it or else it becomes it becomes kind of what it is now and so i mean that's why i mean well we're doing slightly better on the uh, non-tyrannical front than canada oh my goodness 
You have to yeah, how are you doing? You're you're a Canuck, right? You're yeah, okay. definitely. No, I've been I've been kind of I guess pulled into politics in a way that I tend to avoid it explicitly. I I you know I talk about it uh, tangentially, but now I really because I saw this stuff. I mean, I saw the whole thing from the beginning. You know, I was one of the, the conspiracy theorists that saw that all of this was going towards digital ID and, and digital currency. That it was all this massive push towards these types of these types of structures, and so. I, I was like, I'm not going to participate in this, which means that I'm not vaccinated and has actually very little to do with the vaccine. It has everything to do with all the political armature that was being set up around it. And so yeah, that's it, my primary reasons, by the exactly. way, is like, and, what the hell do these people want? No, this isn't happening. Exactly. And so because of that, I'm, I can't travel right now. I can't cross the border. I can't, I can't take a plane, can't leave in my country, basically. Yeah, I saw this thing the other day speaking of that so they've created this kind of non-material wall right to wall you in right and so i was i saw this statistic on twitter the other day and it said that however many fantastically large number of people have left los angeles in the past 12 months or whatever and they they, it's literally like an open question like how could this have happened and it was you know i just replied very simply you know is you you instituted communism without building the wall first that's right and but this is another point though is what we're seeing geopolitically i hate that because it's not geopolitically that means a different it's a different word but what we're seeing politically is that um the the walls are in your phone Mm-hmm. The walls are not, you know, build the wall and Mexico is going to pay for it. They're, they're walls in your phone. Um, you can't buy a plane ticket. So your phone right. can't contain a boarding pass or if you will, you know, it's a little, yeah. not, you could, there's other ways around that, but you, you catch my drift. Yeah. And um, I can't go into the airport. If I go to the airport, they will, they will refuse me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's like, I need, I need, I would need to have, if I don't have, like you said, if I don't have my ID on this thing then yeah. I can't, I can't go. And, and so that's, that's, that's what we're going to increasingly see is the walls will close in through the digital world, right. um, which will feel weirdly artificial, but having been to China a number of times, uh, it still works. It doesn't matter if it's artificial or not, you know, it still works. You yeah. still can't get together in China. Your phone still alerts you if you're near people who have too much debt and gives you a warning that if you spend too much time near somebody with too much debt, then you you know these things will not be good for you or whatever. Your bank account sometimes doesn't work or doesn't allow you to buy certain things. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. Like, I want to give you an image because I've been – I don't know if you've, you probably haven't seen me talk about this. But in the book of Revelation, it's interesting the way in which this comes together. That is, there's this beast that comes out of the sea. And it's, import, it's important to understand the beast that comes out of the sea. When we, when we now have the story of communism, we understand what that means. Like, what is this monster that comes out of the sea to kind of devour? But then that beast ultimately leads to, you know, I mean, there's steps, but it leads to an image of the beast which is intelligent, which speaks. And then that image of the beast which speaks masters the identity of all people right it 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 creates a universal identity by which all things are are completely centralized and that and that you cannot exist in the world without being uh, a vassal to this one identity you could say and so i mean it's fascinating to notice that there's that these two things end up being related as they kind of play themselves out this is these are the kind of extremes that i 
telling you about in terms of because you see that in the story, it's, there's a whore too, right? There's this whore on this beast. That's, right. that's basically our world that until 20, 2020. It's basically been this massive clown world carnival that has been rolling and rolling and rolling. And then at some point, the beast kills the whore and then sets up this absolute tyranny, right? You, I feel like, you know, the, the, the shift between Weimar and, and Nazi Germany is a shift of necessity. Like, I'm not saying that it would be good to become Nazis, but I mean is that it's the, the, the pendulum calls the other side. And so if you go too far in this kind of chaotic madness of, a, of, a, of insane identity, and you know, then it leads to the, the, the tyranny. And so a way to understand it is to understand the Tower of Babel, not in terms of narrative, in terms of subsequent acts, but in terms of the two realities that exist together, right? The absolute fragmentation and the absolute unity and, and uh, tyrannical system they, they kind of play with each other and they create each other. And what we're seeing, weirdly enough, is that we're actually seeing the, the chaos. We're seeing the whore and the tyrant almost being the same. Like the whore is becoming the tyrant. The, it's like the whore is all the imagery of the whore and these weird, these weird, fract, these weird broken down identities and, and marginal beings and exceptions and all of this is actually coalescing into becoming the system of, of absolute identity. It's like and in revelation, what is the resolution of that? Or what is the resolution imagistically? Okay. So it just ends. <laughs> it just the, the great yeah. reset, like okay, no, 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 with no, no. fire. The apocalypse and then Christ so, comes and establishes but then the, the, the end of the world. The, the last image after, after the end of the world is, is actually the, the real solution, which is the image of the heavenly Jerusalem is an image of a technical system, which exists around the garden so at the center of the New Jerusalem is the Garden of Eden. There's a tree of life and the water of life. And then around it is this technical society. And it says that the, the kings of all the nations render their crown to the New Jerusalem. So it also has a fractal structure, which is that all the nations can exist. And they, they give their glory up into the highest thing. And that there's a balance between the system and the source of the system. Like there's a balance between even the technical, the technical part and the purpose and the, the garden that was there at the outset. So the last image in Revelation is actually an image of, of pure, of balance between these extremes that we've seen being playing through all through scripture and all through history, basically, but it kind of comes into this balance. I mean, I don't know exactly what that means. You yeah. know, I don't know how that, how that happens, but at least it doesn't end. It ends well, let's say in terms of, finding that balance. So James, on a previous conversation, we spoke about the university and you brought up this book. I can't remember the author. You could probably remember this author, but he, he spoke about how the universities are going to fail because there's no longer a theological department. There's no longer an axiology or somebody who, uh, you know, because there's no theology there, it's distributed. And then everybody starts to claim the yeah, centralized the, the, belief. The title of that book, and I'm trying to get the author's name back to my recollection, is is the idea of the university. It's very famous uh, mid 19th century uh, Catholic. Wow, mid 19th century. And I'm trying to think of his name because I'm trying to remember if I have the if I, I have two of his books. I know where one of them is, and it's not in this room. And I'm hoping French? the other one is in this room so I can see his name again. You know, it would be really convenient if I happened to be on a computer where I was connected to the Internet and could find out who the name of the author is, <laughs> since I'm not able to think of it. You know, it would be really interesting if that was the case. 
Well, I, I bring it up because um, Jonathan has uh, a core uh, to his axiology or the theology. And, and Jonathan, you put it in the word worship. It's John and there's Henry a Newman. Lot, John, John Henry, Henry Newman is the author. So Jonathan, you have the... Um, you have worship, and we can unpack that, and we should unpack that. I'm sure that that's a great piece of work that you're you're working on to unpack that. And I'm wondering, James, you're aware that that needs to be there. You're aware that there has to be something transcendent or something that um, has the flavor or the aesthetics of a theology that is transcendent, that has some sort of language so, that approaches the divine. So I'm wondering, are yes. you are you working your way toward a word or a concept that can fill that place that we can translate into worship? Or I'm really hesitant to name anything because yeah. that's something very large and very dangerous. Or is it very general. personal? Um, and so, you know, when I outline actually a theology, I'm looking for a kind of metaphilosophy that marries all of these ideas and orients them toward a single kind of transcendent North Star, whether that's values... Uh, our understanding of what it means to know epistemology, axiology, and ontology are the two things. Well, also a sociology, and then that these things are wedded together in a theology, and then oriented toward some kind of a north star. Um, our friend, our mutual friend Mike Nana, uh, used to refer to this, lacking a better term for it. And you know how I mean, all love to Mike, but he uses awkward terms sometimes that are difficult to to unpack, but he calls it the, in, the the infinity point. And we had this really interesting conversation. I don't know if you know that I was a mathematician at one point, Jonathan, but uh, I was formerly a, a mathematician. And so we had this really interesting conversation about this so-called infinity point. And again, we just come back to humility versus arrogance. And so I said, you know, well, this is just like in math. He says, you know, there's this, well, he, let me just say what he says the infinity point is, then we'll do the math part because everybody loves math and wants to talk about math on a podcast. Oh, and so, um, but no, it won't be difficult. It's very simple, actually. And so what he said, you know, is there's this idea that humans are pretty limited beings. And we look out at the world. And it's like, oh, I got that. I got that. I can do this. This is my sphere of influence if you want. And it gets bigger. It's however big it is. It gets pretty big if you're a dedicated worker. Put a lot of things together. Get a good vision of the world. Gain a lot of understanding and experience and so on. But at some point, you're like beyond me, above my pay grade. right? Yeah. And you have to just kick it out and say – yeah, that's how the universe works. That, that, that's infinity. That's God, whatever it happens to be. And so eventually it's, it's a information processing problem for humans and whether that's humans individually or even collectively or even over time that at some point you just say, whoops, that's way beyond my capacity. And so it, it's the infinity point is what he was referring to it as. And that's where it just gets kicked out to God. Uh, and so it gets kicked out to the infinite. And I said, well, it's funny because that's exactly how the infinite works in mathematics. How would we designate, say, the set of natural numbers, which is infinite? One, two, three, four, you know, all the, the counting numbers starting with one. That set is called the natural numbers. And the way that we do that is we say one, two, three, and then uh, however many we want to list. We could list a trillion or a Googleplex or whatever numbers. We could list one, two, and three. We could, we could just put one and then dot, 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 right? And so we just put a, a three dots or ellipsis. And what that means is, is we're now kicking this out to the infinity point. What I said with, with Mike is, well, this is a really fascinating little point. There's an old saying and joke among mathematicians that every number is smaller than most, which is a true statement. So the number of numbers, take the biggest number you want that you can think of, a Googleplex, whatever you want, you know, Graham's number, some huge number. There are, if, if, it's a, if it's a trillion, let's use a trillion just because it sounds big and isn't that big. Um, there's a trillion numbers smaller than a trillion. Right. How many numbers are bigger than a trillion? Infinity. 
So you have to actually count, you could count in trillions, one trillion, two trillion, three trillion, dot, dot, dot. There's an infinite number of trillions. And so every number is smaller than most, is kind of this saying. And so as it turns out, you know, I, we could do this. Thousands, we all kind of know what a thousand is. Million, we have a sense of a million. A billion, this is where some people start to break down. They don't know. And in fact, there's a disagreement across the, the ocean here, formally in America and in Canada, a billion is a thousand million, but in Britain, traditionally, now it's blurry. A billion was a million million, yeah, which we yeah, call a trillion. Yeah, exactly. And so then you get to quadrillion, and then you get to pentillion, and then you get to heck, what was it, hextillion or something, sextillion is for seven, octillion for eight, and that, 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 it goes up and up and up and up, right? And well, it turns out eventually. Not only do you run out of names for numbers, you run out of the capacity to name numbers. You cannot name numbers after a certain point, which is why when you get to really, really big numbers, like Graham's number, which turns out to be smaller than most, it would take us, if I remembered how to do it, most of an hour to explain what Graham's number even is. And it, most of the numbers between, say, a trillion and Graham's number don't have names. They cannot be named. There are not words to name them. And it, you run, you get to the point eventually where you couldn't name all the word all of the numbers anyway because literally there aren't even enough atoms in the observable universe to where you could count each atom as a letter to write down the name of the number, and so you literally hit this problem where there's a infinity point in a sense where you can't even name numbers anymore they don't mean anything anymore, and this is why there's these weird branches of mathematicians who deny infinity entirely as a mathematical object they deny the axiom of infinity and some of them are called finitists. And they just kind of vaguely say, they say that numbers are indefinite, not that they're infinite. And so it's meaning they are without definition at some point, indefinite. And uh, that you just, at some point, you just have to kick it out to infinity if you accept the axiom of infinity, which is in a sense like accepting a theological axiom of God. But in any, at any, it doesn't matter whether you're a finitist or an ultra finitist is whatever the hell that means, I can't remember. Or if you are, um, somebody who accepts the axiom of infinity that, yeah, okay, the natural number is an infinite set. At some point, everything's a mystery beyond your comprehension. And you actually have to just stop and say, okay, that's just how it is. And so you, there is this orientation, this is that humility that I keep kind of coming back to, where at some point you have to, or the worship, if you want, where you have to stop and say, there's something going on all, all up there. All the numbers that I know, all the ideas I know, are the ripples on the surface of a very deep lake. And what's the current is all under the water. And so are all the big scary fish in Chulu, coming, the beast coming out with a whore on its back. And every other thing is down in the depths. Uh, the Balrog is all down deep in the water. And so there are things way beyond my comprehension, both for good and bad. And we have to kick that out and... and Again, humiliate ourselves. And I say that, I don't say humble. I say humiliate ourselves in front of that uh, reality. And so I agree, but I don't have maybe the courage or the um, brashness to name that thing, uh, to apply a name to it. And then I say, I would say things like, well, obviously we can read the Christian scripture if you want, or if you're Jewish, you can read just that part of it. Uh, and the attendant other parts that the Christians don't recognize. Uh, you can read your scriptures and get a taste of this thing. But I don't want to get all into this 
you know, kind of weird dialectical, all the religions are just parts of one, well, you know, transcendent well, to, religion. To, to ground it down, either. I mean, Jonathan, you mentioned the word very early in this conversation about being embodied, like yeah. practices and embodiment. And, and James, I know that you have a sword. Uh, so <laughs> I have a very large sword. That's correct. So yeah, you're a part I, of the sword cast, part, but um, you're, part of the, uh, you're definitely part of the, you're more of a Kshatriya than, than, a, than a Brahmin, I would say. In you your, better watch your, out then. In your but I, I like to say something about, you know, it, like what you said in terms of, so I think it's important to understand that in, in the in more mystical Christianity, let's say in the, I'm, I'm Orthodox and in Orthodoxy, we really do have an understanding that God is the, the infinite itself. And so, I like actually the word indefinite. That is, in the sense that all the, all, let's say, all the natural numbers are indefinite in the sense that they are contained in the set of natural numbers. Right? The set of natural numbers is above all the. So it's actually like that for many things. Like the most of all the things you can recognize as having being have an indefinite amount of aspects to them, and that they jump up into something which is beyond it, you know, and this Yeah, is- let me actually, I don't want to lose your thought, but let me give you a clear definition of indefinite, which is that anything that you give as the definition misses something. Yeah, well, that's not what I, yeah, well, you could say that, you could actually say that about, about the notion of infinite. That is that, at least in, 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 in Orthodox theology, we say that God is beyond being, and that so that God is actually, all the names of God are are not appropriate to God and that all the ways in which we, we, that, that God is beyond all thing, all thought, all being, all capacity, all be, you know, being and non-being. Sam Maximus says that God is being and non-being. So it's like, he, he just takes two categories that are, uh, that basically contain everything that, but that don't seem to fit together and smashes them together. And you see that if you, like you said, you, you've studied Taoist thinking, you'll see that they take that kind of Cohen, approach where they they smash two categories together to kind of make you jump up but so the the sense is that you're right god is you don't want to name god in it in god's absolute you know essence or whatever but that nonetheless that because god is the source of everything and because god is the origin of of all these other hierarchies that kind of lay themselves out then we live through participating and like we live through participating, we live through worship, we live through worshiping uh, that infinite God, and that has an actual embodied reality to it. it. It's not it's not just something we do on Twitter or something that we do in our mind. That it implies community. It implies uh, you know pr- practicing certain moral practices. It even I mean implies a certain posture towards towards reality and you know disciplines, practices, prayers. Uh, all these things so that this embodies us like it makes the infinite land in your in your actual life and that's how we that's how i think we end up gluing together more than whatever political tools we have it's that common orientation which will make us come together and it's not perfect it's obviously it's messy and it, there's all these you know, I mean, I mean, if you know history, you know that the Christians fight with each other and the Muslims fight with each other and the Christians fight the Muslims and everything. Like, it's obviously a messy thing. It's not a... But I do think, nonetheless, that this kind of embodied 
worship is the way in which we can ground our our being and end up in communion with others. And then the rest, like in terms of our political stances, they derive from from that. I don't know if that makes sense to you. It might be pushing you a little far there. No, I mean, it, I, I'm I'm trying to make. I mean, I think I understand what you're saying, and so I'm trying to figure out a way to frame something intelligent to say in response to it, not necessarily to disagree with it, because I don't actually think we disagree as much as we might think, uh, except maybe in the naming. Um, I'm trying to figure out through the idea of worship, as a matter of fact, because I, I say I kept using the metaphor of a North Star, right? Mm. And so what that is, is what it's a it's a unifying direction. Yeah, it's, you a, have it's to, a point like, for yourself. unifying to, to aligning people's uh, focus or whatever. Yeah. And so worship, you know, can be individual, but it can also be this communal project. And in some sense, it's almost like what we're talking about by worship is getting people to put their to fixate their their gaze in the same direction and to be humble in the same way before the same thing uh, rather than pointing in all different directions and doing whatever. Uh, and, if, you know, there's probably many intelligent things we could throw in here about kind of the Marxist perversion of this uh, exact system as well. Uh, yeah. You know, where you but know, it's, Marx... it's, what's important to understand is that in the system, because we talked about different infinites, it's important to understand that this this is a fractal thing. And that's right. what one of the differences between the, the authoritarian and totalitarian uh, gesture that we see in the 20th century and now again is that it's fractal. So we we exist as a family by all being oriented together towards our unity as a family. Right. That's right. our right. little North Star. And then we exist as a city to by having all our orientation in the same direction, recognizing the name, the city, and the structures which which embody it. So you have this fractal orienting that you that you mentioned, and mm-hmm. that that fractal orienting kind of they all these these orientations build up on each other and then create a world in which you can actually live. In the in the authoritarian system, they understand that too, but they want one thing that binds us all like one they want one an end point. they want a point like they want the state or they want stalin or they want the the leader or they want one thing and that in order for that to, to work they have to break down all the intermediary structures they have to destroy community they have to destroy churches they have to destroy all the intermediary points of attention in order to create one single thing that kind of tries to bind all of reality together. That's the Tower of Babel image as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. I hear you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that you're not wrong in this. You're not wrong in this um, intuition that you have, that this fractal structure as you're, as you're framing it. I'm picturing like the Serpinski Triangle as you're talking, uh, actually, as a matter of fact. That is. is that it's, the triangle with triangles inside? Yeah, yeah, it's the yeah, triangle yeah, with the triangle inside, exactly the triangles right. inside. Yeah, but you just take the bottom pieces off so it looks like a hierarchy instead. All the bottoms of the triangle are deleted, so now it looks like a tree diagram. I think that's got a name, too. It's probably Serpinski's tree or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, it's named after a guy named Serpinski, as it turns out. But, and, yeah, and, and so you are correct with the totalitarian impulse. And, of course, this is also what, what, what Marx says in his critique of, of Hegel's philosophy of the right. is you know This is a famous opium of the masses introduction. The religion is the sigh of the sigh of the oppressed creature. It's uh, it's the opium of the masses, 
And, but a couple paragraphs down, he says that religion is the false sun that man puts uh, so that he orbits around it until he realizes that he orbits around the true sun of himself. And, mm. and so you can easily see how that breaks down the uh, entire hierarchy. You're not orienting yourself toward your family. You're not orienting, orienting yourself toward your network of friends or your community. You're not orienting yourself toward the city or you know, broader community in which that's embedded. You're not orienting that toward maybe the state or nation. You're not orienting that toward, uh, and I was just thinking while you were talking about it, it's a, something as, you know, somebody who's very active as atheist movement stuff a decade ago. And look, think back at how it used to bother me to see kind of state officials like give glory to God. And now it's like, no, they're saying there's something higher than me that I have to be. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, that's really, that's really comforting. (laughs) Okay. It's not necessarily an endorsement of religion. It's a, I'm not king of the universe mentality. That's sort of important here that I'm kind of appreciating at the moment. And so what you see then is everybody's orienting toward themselves. And so what's going to happen is some megalomaniac is going to come in and be able to decide he's the true North star with the right philosophy. That's going to dictate what North stardoms, you know, it might not even be a star. It's probably the dirt and we're all going to face. And so, you know, I think you are, I I I really like your framing. I've got more, it's hard to respond to because it's kind of abstract in the moment, but I, I don't disagree with what you've put out, uh, whatsoever. Yeah, but you can see how, like, that's why I use the word worship. It's attention. It's like, you were right when you talked about this idea of the North Star, but it's an embodied attention, which which actually makes the world, actually, it's it's even more than what I said. It actually makes pretty much everything exist. It's like all things that have multiplicity are bound through something like a North Star in order for them to exist, even objects and things in the world. But that scales up into us. And then we exist together as beings because you're made a bunch of stuff too. Like you're also made about, about of a bunch of, of multiplicity, but nonetheless, these multiplicity coalesces into one, but only to the extent that you also are bound to others in love and that that continues to build up. And that's that image that I said about the new, the new heavenly Jerusalem, right? That's yeah. why there's this image of the Kings render their crowns, their glory up into the new Jerusalem. That is that they all exist as kingdoms, but they are able to understand that there's something there's something transcend that transcends them, and they give that up, and it keeps going up until it reaches, uh, you know, the until it reaches God, basically. So yeah, this is um, this opens in the question is what? So I think we're largely talking about the same thing in very different ways, and how what does it look like? in the 21st century where we are all connected by our phones, where our nations mean something because we live there physically and depend upon physical reality to survive in them. But at the same time, our nations that we identify with are primarily digital bands of people who are in some sense like-minded, which transcends or crosses all borders. Um, And then we're kind of in this poisonous moment where literally folkish thought folkish nationalist thought is being injected into identity categories, which has never worked out real well. You know, uh, it's almost like there's this attempt to hammer us into, oh, you're white, so you're black, so you're Hispanic, so uh, this, that, and the other thing in each case. And, you know, you should identify that. I even just saw a thing today somebody sent me. It was even when you speak about somebody else, that you should, unless they've explicitly told you, opted out, you should put identity first. So I can't refer to, um, say, I, I met with the Congressman Byron Donalds the other day. I talked to him. I can't say, 
yeah, I talked to Byron Donalds. I have to say I talked to the black man, Byron Donalds. I have to put his identity first to recognize the importance of the identity. And so it's almost like I met with the Chinese national so-and-so. I met with the British so-and-so. You yeah. know, it's, it, this folkish nationalism is being hammered on us in this kind of most disgusting way. So this is a challenge we're up, we're up against. What does this fractal orientation, if we will, uh, this kind of fractal hierarchy of worship look like in a world that is no longer that your community is necessarily the physical community that you're surrounded with by virtue of happen, happening to have been born or moved to a certain locale. Uh, and even with family, you know, you're born into your family, but you're you're living on your smartphone, which is connected to the world everywhere. Fun times with being married, yeah. sitting <laughs> on opposite ends of the couch as we do, talking to our people yeah. in our phones, you know, well, barely I, I looking at each that- other. I, I think that the, the, the solution to that is reorienting of attention. And I think that it is, I mean, I'm not saying that, I mean, we're trying and we're, this is something that we're trying to do here as well, which is to reconnect to the, to the, to our feet that are on the ground. And so it's mm-hmm. not that we're going to necessarily completely not use the phone or decry the phone, but you know, you go to church. That's why I tell people on my channel, I go to church. And what I mean by go to church is, I mean, physically go to places where people gather together. You know, I say the same thing. Real life is what happens when you get offline. And I've had this whole conversation yesterday about with, with my friend, John Wood Jr. I'm supposed to say, uh, Black man, we have to identify. And so <laughs> we were having a conversation yesterday, and uh, we were talking about the difference between Zoom calls and conferences and getting together in person and the difference in connection that it makes. And, the, and how I, a year and a half ago, when COVID finally let me go to my first conference, and I, I just thought, I sat there in the lobby of this hotel after I talked with several people who went, wandered off for other commitments at the conference, and I kind of got left with nothing to do for a minute. And I sat there and thought about it. It's like, you know, this is magic. Yeah, I feel closer to these people in a different way than I would if we would have spent all this time by Zoom, where I'm just going to push the red button on my screen in a minute, and we're all back in our own worlds. You know, we had to travel together, so there's a commitment to getting there. We came together. We're physically present with one another. If I start to drift, you can slap me on the side of the head or the shoulder or whatever, get my attention, tap me on the shoulder, arm around me. You know, so there are these attention-orienting things that bring that community together. So I agree, yeah, go to church. Uh, where church can be construed broadly or narrowly or both. Yeah. I mean, that's the way that we've been trying to do it. And also, also, I mean, basically, I don't know if you know Rod Dreher. Uh, he wrote, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so his his kind of Benedict option and now his recent book has been a way of thinking, you know, the way we're setting things up here. And so, like, the parish, but the, it's the online world is useful. So I can tell you what's happening around me right now. So my my parish basically you have this situation where a bunch of people start going to an Orthodox church because they watch my videos online. Not just that, but partly that. So they end up in this parish, but then the people there want to have a more real community and more real encounter. And so we actually start working on that, creating alternative, even networks for food, alternative networks for, you know, and understand that we have to be in the same place. We have to get together and eat together and sing together and do these things physically and work towards basically creating alternative, uh, even alternative economic systems, like looking at the Mennonites as a, as a kind of example of what's possible in terms of creating alternative uh, systems in every sphere of reality, because without that, we're fried, like we are. 
No, and, I totally and, agree. And it has to happen very pretty fast because I things agree. are going super fast. Yeah, we've got to anchor ourselves onto the analog. In fact, the the physical. Um, yeah. In addition to figuring out how to make use of the digital, while dealing with the fact that these things are dopamine pumps above almost anything else, yeah. and that the law of convenience dictates it's just easier, and therefore, you know, you you have to go through all that trouble to go to a conference. You have to get on a plane. You have to stay in a hotel. You have to pack your bag. You have to go through trouble to drive to the church or even to walk to the church and to be at the church. And there's other things you could be doing. And it's at a certain time. If you get want people to get together, turns out punctuality is not white supremacy culture. It's a thing that ha- is required for people to get together. Just intentionally. To get together. Yeah. 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 yeah and then there's the messiness of saying something in front of someone that you don't get on Twitter that you don't get on Facebook. You know, you, yeah. you say something standing in front of someone and then you see the way they look at you and you, you get it, you know, you can sense that's why, you can understand why the online world creates such dysfunctional behavior because yeah, of course. usually the the physical world is there to remind you that that joke was a little was off key like that was too much you know that statement just just came out of nowhere right. you get Whereas it on by Twitter, the you subtle... just block them <laughs> exactly like, you just block them. and I rem- this was a thing for me so this is a spiritual moment I was in a conversation publicly one time where it turned out to get kind of contentious across and I had the the urge. This was a like a red warning siren that went off in my and head when I realized to block, it, to block them. I, I wish I could block this person, like and like push a button and they just dis- disappear. I can't hear from them anymore. And I was like, holy shit, I have left the path of wisdom. I have to come back, um, <laughs> you know. And so I agree with you completely about this. And I, I also agree if we don't do this fairly quickly, we're fried because the architects of digital tyranny are are well ahead of. Uh, where people think they might be. They've been seeing these opportunities and gaming for them for a while. Yeah, that's what it feels like. I mean, it's, it's like we're late to the game in understanding how this has this has been building up towards, you know, like the relationship between digital currency, metaverse, digital identity, all these things, all of a sudden these puzzles that are appearing in front of us. And you think, well, for these puzzle, for these puzzle pieces to appear so close to each other at this moment, it's not like this hasn't been going on for a while. Like these these pieces have been put into place for a while. So, like you said, there's a we have we we have a we have a disadvantage at the moment in terms of uh, we need to to catch up to to make sure that we're not completely swallowed. But in Canada, for sure, it's not the, the being in the United States at this moment is probably a good thing. Yeah, it's almost like the closer to Florida you are. you know or tennessee or whatever all the these southern states like for sure i i because i have now i have a lot of friends there and you can just see that they just don't understand i think it'll reach there eventually because it seems like it's so pernicious and it's also for example like our digital id program here i mean obviously it's nobody voted on this it's just happening it's just happening as if this is so obvious it's just happening through osmosis and, and it's like, oh, you know, and so it's like we have a digital ID program here and in Ontario and, you know, it's moving towards towards a federal ID of some kind. And so it's just happening. And I think it's it's going to happen in the U.S. as well, but they'll just take longer with more resistance. Yeah, so there's a great deal more resistance. Ready. Yeah. Not in California or New York, but virtually everywhere else. Yeah. Maybe not in Washington either. Sorry, Benjamin. 
No, we're screwed. Um, but it's yeah, beautiful. you guys are like pretty much a pit of hell with very nice scenery and very nice pleasant scenery. weather. Yeah, but it, don't you feel, James, that something though has kind of broken in the past six months, or maybe like four or five months? Oh, definitely. Some things we're not allowed to talk about a few months ago. All of a sudden, now people are talking about World Economic Forum before you would even just say that, <laughs> and you were immediately like banned, and you were a, you were a I know conspiracy theorist. All of a sudden, we can say it. We can talk about digital ID. We can we can talk about digital currency, and it's it's as if they can't hold it in anymore. That's- that's what you remember, Benjamin, when we had our conversation about the second enlightenment and I did a podcast about it. And uh, I said that the, it wouldn't be able to be contained. Right. And so this is I feel like what's happening. This is why I'm actually optimistic is I don't mm-hmm. feel like they are going to be as able to contain it as they hope they are. But it, not to say that things are going to be smooth. Um, in fact, they're probably going to be quite bumpy. Uh, but, yeah, something is definitely broken. I feel sometimes like, you know. We're in a fishbowl and we've punched through the glass and the water's pouring out a little bit now. Um, I take a little credit with the World Economic Forum because, of course, I've been banging that drum for a little while. Other people have been as well. But I remember I called a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, uh, Mike O'Fallon, uh, on the phone last late last summer. It was still hot out. So I don't I just remember the weather. It was still hot out. And I called him and I said, I'm so frustrated that nobody knows who Klaus Schwab is. And then I said, what we need, and he, he he's, he's, he's like in his fifties. So he's a boomer and had no idea what I was talking about. I was like, we need a Wojak meme of Klaus Schwab. And then of course I, started, I found one and started making these Wojak Klaus, Klaus Schwab, you know, easy damn bugs, you know, or whatever I put yeah. these words. And so I made like, I, people are like, wow, have you seen these memes? They send them to me all the time. And I open my phone and show them where I made them you know, hundreds of them yeah. and just started flooding the zone. And I was like, I told Mike, I was like, people are going to see this. And they're going to think it's just some funny bond villain thing. And then one day they're going to realize this son of a bitch is real. <laughs> and yeah. they're going to be like, wait, what? And that has happened. And so that I feel it's like that scene in Kingsman where they're all, I don't know if you've watched that film or not. I know you like to watch films, but they're, they're in the training and they're in their dormitory and they flood it with water and the one, they're all like drinking out of the toilet or breathing out of the toilet or whatever. And because the U bend or whatever, and there's air, which gross. And so, the however, the you know, the edgy different guy, the Iggy character, swims over and punches through the glass, and the water pours out, and they all get out of it, um, realizing that they're being watched through a two way mirror. And he punches through that. And I feel as though, you know, we have broken through on certain issues that the damn not only is cracked and not only is leaking, but now like chunks of concrete are flying off in the flood of water that's coming through. And the whole thing is likely to fail soon. Um, But if the water doesn't stop going, it's good that you say the thing is going to fail. I mean, I think that's like, that's because now anyway, I mean, it's the power of Babel. I'm happy that you have, I'm not as optimistic as you. I, I, maybe it's because I'm in Canada and the liberals now, they basically cemented their power until 2025 and they're just, they're just going to plow on. You know, they're saying three doses for federal employees. They're basically going to keep adding doses until they remove any political opposition that in the, in the deep state. And so it'll just yeah. be like, man, this is the uh, same conversation I have with Mr. Nana in Australia. Um, I occasionally have this conversation with Americans, but actually, you know, we're pretty, Rootin' tootin', like every one of us is Tom Cruise jumping in an F-14, like right now. 
and or the, whatever that other movie, Iron Eagle, where it was the F-16, and there's like some 16-year-old kid just like flying a F-16 and blowing up like Iran or something like that. Like every one of us is that kind of, except for the white liberals who are eating the fruit the snake gave them right now and just yeah. so happy about it. They're like, yum, apples. <laughs> no, we are, I mean, are, like Canada's screwed. Or- we're going to come save you, but like we got to fix ourselves first. We got to clean yeah, our room yeah. so we can come <laughs> save your world in order. We can come save us from, from Justin. Man. Yeah. It's, well, this it, is the thing, though, is is I'm highly convinced that if they can't get the United States, then their thing is going to fall apart. Yeah. Now, I'm not promising that your life in Canada is going to be a pleasant one <laughs> anytime soon. But if they can't get the United States, then their thing is going to break. If their thing breaks, the next step is going to be... If we, if actual power shift occurs in the United States, for example, um, the next stage is going to be accountability. And people like Justin are going to get dragged before a world court. And the liberals having cemented their power to 2025 and forcing all this crap isn't going to mean crap if every one of them is going to, you know, some going to The Hague and being brought up on, on crimes against humanity, which is where an accountability phase will go. And I actually think this is part of the reason they're making such a desperate bid for totalitarian power right now, not just because they dream of it and covet it and always have as the types of people they are, but also because they know that that the Internet, uh, through its information capacity and the schemes that they've been pulling with financial markets, et cetera, are all closing in on them. That they're going to be exposed not just to charlatans and frauds, which is one of their bigger fears, but also criminals. Um, And it's a matter of if – I mean, look at the CCP, criminal organization, obviously completely clamped down on their people and they're stuck. Look at the Soviet Union. It lasted 69 years, completely criminal organization running all of that territory and all of those people into the ground for literally, you know, 70 percent of a century. Um, so we now have a little longer than we would wish it. That it's these left. are not ideal. This is a kind of stakes defining uh, yeah. things that I remind myself of. Um, it's not that we're going to have tyranny for a season if it comes. Yeah. It will be hard as hell to get rid of it if it can be got rid of. But I think if they can't get the United States, then the opening for proper trials that are of crimes against humanity flavor changes the game as far as, you know, if you look just at local Canadian or Australian or whatever politics and you don't see a way out, the international way out comes if their program starts to falter and fall apart. And I don't think that they can do it if they can't get the United States, but they're going to be some, if they get like all of Canada and the other five I nations, for example, and they don't get the United States, they're going to manufacture some damn crisis to try to invade the United States with global forces, et cetera, which that'll be hot and exciting. Um, I don't think anybody wants to invade the United States other than I, Mexicans looking for a job. No, I think they do. Speaking of Mexicans looking for a job, you know, the Democrats, I just read this online, total tangent, not our conversation, but I want to just make it broadcast on more places. So I'm going to say it um, just to speak my motivations and intentions. You know, the Democrats believed they've explicitly bragged that they're going to create a permanent Democratic majority by basically importing a bunch of Mexicans and South Americans, Central Americans, who are going to be permanent Democratic voters. And I don't think that they understand that all it takes is Spanish language media explaining queer theory to and what they're doing to the children, to the Latinos, and their whole pro, they're Republicans forever. <laughs> they are whoever is not the Democrats for all of eternity. Yeah. Um, and so 
handouts will not overcome. By the way, it's we're giving you a you know we're giving you all this welfare, but we're stealing your children. Um, it, that's not going to fly in in Latino culture. So, you know, whoever's listening, start putting those stories on Spanish language media <laughs> as widely as possible. Yeah, just going to keep because I put it on Twitter and all I got like 60 likes. I'm like, dude, this is like the most important thing I've said this month. <laughs> pay attention. Grand strategy, James. Some people don't don't pay attention to it. That's yeah, OK. I just want a bunch of congressmen and other people the same strategy in person and also some Spanish language media people over the weekend. Well, the thing I, the thing about us, like where I am in Quebec, ahead. the thing about us is that the French Canadians, they move in a block or they, they just for some reason, they just all decide they're going to vote for the same they don't even tell each other there's that one time where all the all the french canadians decided to vote for ndp for some reason and nobody had told each other they would and they just all decided they just like this weird like hive mind and so and can and the french canadians control can canadian politics that's the secret is that french canadian control for good or ill they control canadian politics and so now like there's for the first time in my in my life there's a conservative party in quebec they have like 20% all of a sudden. They went from like 0.01% of voting intentions to like 20% in six months. It's insane. They don't have a party yet. They don't have any, like they don't have people in the party and everything. I was actually like vice president of my local party for like two weeks because they just didn't have anybody there. Um, and so it's like if the French Canadians shift, then things could shift. But, oh, man. It's, I mean, it's like the Latinos in Texas and Florida. Yeah. I'm telling you, if they were to bombard Spanish language in California, California could actually be in some trouble as far as Arizona as well um, on, on the American southern border. So, you know, I don't know what you have to do to the Quebecois, but um, putting it in French isn't going to help. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I'm a bit disillusioned with my own people and it's something I need to heal uh, my own fractal attention structure is something that I, I need to deal with myself. No, I hear you because I'm very frustrated with the Canucks right now. Yeah, yeah, with reason. And I'm from very close to there, by the way, originally. I'm from the border of New York. Yeah, uh, cool. yeah so I'm actually of similar blood, but I don't think we're French. Well, my dad took me to Canada the first time. It was We were in Quebec, and uh, we went to a McDonald's of all places because I was a kid, and that's I had to eat something I recognized. Yeah. And uh, also it was like the 80s or something. So it was like what it is. And so they, you know, ordered in French. And my dad spoke enough French to do it. And then he said, he turned to me, he said, do you know what they said? And I said, no. And he said, they said, eat this and die, American pig. And I've, that's stuck to me my entire <laughs> that's life. So that's what I think of you. You've had a secret animosity towards French Canadians because of that one lie. Because my dad's a you. practical joker. Yeah. <laughs> I think he really said like pull around to the window. But yeah, 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 that's hilarious. <laughs> so, James, you have race Marxism out that came out, what, four weeks ago, three weeks ago, pretty recently. It right? came out February 15th. So it's oh, so April 5th now. So two months month and a half. OK. Yeah. It's been a while. Um, how's that doing? Good. Yeah. And Jonathan, have, has your uh, the first episode of your comic uh, dropped recently or? I mean, we're still it's still printing, but we I put out the PDF for the people that were supporting us on Indiegogo, and so that's kind of happening right now. So that's cool. God's yeah. dog. God's dog. Yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, James, you, you run New Discourses, which is a plethora of me. It's a huge media empire, at least a fife you got going on there. You got yeah, we got a fiefdom. Yeah, I have, have a solid fiefdom going on. I started a new so. podcast, a third podcast product. What's it called? What's three the theme? now. It is called New Discourses Bullets. It's so American. I've got actually a hollow point with the New Discourses <laughs> logo as the image. And then it puts the title in bullet points so you can see the pun like with your own eyes. Mm. And that's but like anyways, James Shorts. They're shorts. They're they're meant to be eight to twelve minutes, with ten is kind of the ideal, and digestible for policymakers. I spent the week in the Oklahoma State House talking with senators and congressmen and the cabinet and the governor and all of these things in Oklahoma, and um, they made it pretty clear that having concise kind of little things that they can digest in ten minutes rather than an hour and a half would be very helpful. Uh, and so I said, okay, I'll try to see what I can do. And I started to realize that the public talks I give kind of come as comedians would say in bits. And so I could just take these bits that I string together and then, you know, put transitions between them and in a talk, I can actually just do those bits as kind of concise bullet point type discussions. And so the point is really to make them quick, to make them shareable, but to also to make them useful to busy people like executives and lawmakers and so on. And so yeah. the first one of those came out day before yesterday, and it's about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, I mean, it's really funny because it's kind of, they're all the same. Here's this idea. It means Marxism. <laughs> There's all of them in one one sentence. Um I don't need the the social justice encyclopedia I was writing anymore because it's, you know, pick your favorite word. What does it mean? It means Marxism. That's what it means. Uh, they all mean Marxism. Democracy means a state where everybody's equal and then they vote. In other words, Marxism with voting. And I mean, it's, it's they, they all mean the same damn thing. Um, but anyway, I've got the new pro podcast product happening now and it's exciting. Anyways, I wanted to. I just wanted to say thanks for what you're doing, James. Because I, I don't think there's anybody else doing. Is there someone else doing what you're doing? That is no. Actually... It's frustrating because I wish there was because I would put them on queer theory so that I can somebody have do what I do with queer theory. So I don't have because I don't have time to do queer theory because I'm bogged down in education theory because my friend Peter Bogosian said he was going to do it and then didn't and nobody did it and so now I have to do it because I'm like. I was reading their their education books, and I was like, I can't understand this until I go read Marx. I can't actually even understand what I'm reading until I go see. And now it's like, oh, crap. All I did was repackage Marx. And then I look at now this culturally responsive teaching. I'm like, oh, they just repackaged Paulo Freire. It's just a repackage. It's literally – these people are not creative. I'm like, oh, my god. It's literally the same thing. And so now like I'm doing Freire on the one hand and then switching over to racial literacy on the other. And then like, by the way – Freire's thing was political literacy. Now this is racial literacy. Derp, can you see it? And um, But no, nobody else is doing it, and I wish there were. I need, like, there are, like, 12 domains this is happening in. I need, like, 11 more of me. Yeah, but it's just, it's, I think it's because the way that the texts are written is so difficult to pierce. You I even have to, I'm, like, I'm geared up, and I have to read them five times before I understand what I'm reading. No kidding. So I told somebody yesterday, it's a 10 to 1 ratio like time ratio. I have to read the book five times and it's hard. So you have to read it slow to really get a hold of what's being said. Because it's funny how they're calling everybody about dog whistles. All they write is dog whistles. Everything yeah. is a, a code. It's all coded. 
Yeah, but it's there. Seem, it seems part of the strategy also to obfuscate in that way. I mean, you can see it because I mean, you've seen it with what you're doing with CRT, which is that they just tell you it doesn't exist. Yeah, <laughs> just say it doesn't exist, and then then continue to to do it, and then say no, no, we're not. What you're saying, we're doing, we're not doing, and then they turn around and say, okay, let's do this, and yeah. they even say it loud that we're doing this, and then when you say they're doing it, they're like, no, we're not doing that. But and then eventually, this. oh no, we're not doing that. It's crazy. And then eventually, they hold it up and they're like, "Yeah, got me red-handed." But we've always been doing it, and it's necessary to do it more. And it was already. And the same strategy is applied to the whole COVID stuff, which is, you know, you're saying, "Look, look at the, this is this is being weaponized and moved towards digital identity, digital currency." And then they say, "No, you're a conspiracy theorist." And so here's our digi- that digital identity program. They can say it like one breath from from the other, and people still think you're conspiracy theorists for saying it. It's the, it's like the the say that we're, 1984 doublethink is in full action, which what it makes your work a lot harder because you have to break through the doublethink before you can even convince people that this is happening, and that's like it's like deprogramming people. Yeah, my favorite example of that I came across recently just to pointed out is in the Freire's book, The Politics of Education. He's like, r- people who call themselves educators now actually have a messiah complex that they're going to save people from being uneducated. And I'm like, dude, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You're trying to save people from the existing system. That's literally the definition of a messiah. Like, you're projecting it. Oh, my God. It's within the, like, you know, no, 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 everybody else is doing that. We don't do that, yeah. by the way. Here's my permanent prophetic vision for education and society. Have there been any hardcore um, Marxist thinkers uh, or postmodernists that have made a turn or kind of reformed themselves later on in life and said, you know what, this isn't, this isn't. I mean, Thomas Sowell famously said, he started out Marxist and became a conservative. And then he got asked why. And he said, well, facts. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah but yeah. He, he, that was early in his career i'm wondering if anybody had a deathbed conversion oh i don't know. i don't okay you know it's really interesting and this is probably a huge weakness in my my work i'm not interested in people like the the, the characters i don't care yeah i read their ideas they're almost unfortunately disembodied um occasionally i start like with marx now i read a biography or two of marx and i'm like oh well i see what he's about and then with foucault it's like well the dude wanted to diddle kids like the, yeah. just what he, he wanted to get engage in hardcore bdm at bdsm gay sex which whatever more power to him with kids no gay not more power to him and like so much of his philosophy derives from that marx wanted people to pay his way while he diddled around with philosophy Okay, like I got you. All I want to do is write worthless crap. And famously, like his mother was like, Carl is so great at talking about capital. Maybe he should earn some, you know, or something like that. Uh, So sometimes it becomes interesting, but I don't know. I don't track them like that. Uh, Deathbed seems like a weird time that you would give up on communism. Uh, You know, there's not really an incentive there at your deathbed to say, whoa, I was wrong about this. but, you know, when your life sucks and then you realize that taking responsibility for it can help you climb out of that, then you have that moment. Or like with Manning Johnson, very famously, uh, when he realized that the communists were using him to create a black vanguard. Um, and he was like, wait a minute, this is just plantation under under, you know, Eastern Bloc language or whatever. Uh, and he got out and became anti-communist, you know, he, when you, you do that disillusionment 
it seems like it could come at the end of life, like deathbed conversion, but it seems to come from what I've seen with, you know, different examples earlier yeah, like, uh, than that. A lot of people get strung up, strung in by like the idealism of, of mm. uh, the communism. But most of the, most people I know by the time, you know, they're like 25, 26, if they're going to wake up, that's, they wake up like in their twenties and then they're like, no, this is crazy. But a lot of people read, have, are, seduced by communist ideas when they're like 19 20 21 it seems like that's a lot of people that happens to them but a, i had this I, funny story last weekend when i was in in miami i went out to grab some dinner uh at a friend that can vouch for for this with me and we went out to grab some dinner and this you know these guys these activists were on the street corner and the guy comes up to me and was like hey would you like to help save the world and i was like you know you probably don't hear this very often but i'm a little busy saving the world already and i mean that and so you're lucky he didn't recognize you as (laughs) yeah i know and so we get having this conversation and i'm like well what do you do and it's like well we you know he's talking about all the forest being cut down he's got some environmental thing going on so he's like an enviro communist and he's talking about you know he's like well well, how are you saving the world i'm like well i don't don't know about that but i talk about marxism and this is you know i'm talking about you know what's going on in the world today is marxism and he's like well marxism is actually good and so then it kind of progresses in that regard and we start having the conversation he's like what do you see is wrong with marxism and i kind of blow his mind a little bit because it's like i actually know it and he didn't think that was going to happen and so then i'm like okay so all this is a bit fun and abstract but also i want to go to dinner and i don't really want to keep doing this all night so let me just cut to a chase you're talking about the, the the rainforest in Brazil and around the world and saving the trees and how many football fields worth or square miles worth or whatever of forest are being cut down every 10 minutes. What are you doing on a street corner in Miami in one of the richest neighborhoods of Miami to solve that problem? And he was like, oh, we buy the land. And then when the land is bought, then they can't cut down the trees on it because it's protected. And so we just be, buy the land and turn it into a conservancy. And I was, and he was like, so, and he, he caught himself. He's like, oh, so we're really using capitalism against itself. And I was like, why don't you just say that you're using capitalism to achieve a goal in the world? Because that's actually what you're doing. And the capitalism, in other words, the securing of private private property rights, is what's saving the trees. It is the fact that you are acquiring the capital, and there's a securing of property rights. That means that people can't come and cut down those trees and plant, you know, a farm for two years that the soil will be then destroyed or whatever. So the capitalism is actually what's enabling you to save the forest. Why don't you put it that way instead of this crap about how you're using capitalism against itself? And he just kind of like it was like that, you know, like men in black. Cause you, he's like, I guess we kind of are. And then I was like, OK, so now I'm going to ask you a more practical question. What's good to eat in this neighborhood? And then we we had a great after that. It was really weird. The politics vanished, and like they all turned so nice. It was like super like kind of confrontational, but not antagonistic. And it was like now we're friends. Oh, I love this restaurant. Oh, this one. There's all these people crowded around their whole little group. It wasn't just me and the guy kind of verbally sparring. All the other ones like come over, and we're all like hugs and handshakes. And it's like that sushi place over there is really good. And it's like wow, look at that food and neighborhood, et cetera, have brought us together immediately. Wow. Um, it was really, it's kind of a neat experience, but you know, uh, I don't know exactly what the point of that was, but, oh, we had a conversion. No, but I I think it's, I think it's a good point. It's a good point also in that real encounters and that actual, you know, encounters with people are different Hmm. from these, the abstractions that communism engages with the kind of weird abstract notions of classes and the weird abstract notion of how, 
how you know these systems are going to be put into place you know this people excited about their own community and excited about fixing things where they are that's that's the real thing yeah that's part of why my favorite piece of art regarding communism i think is this political cartoon of you know the jackboot coming down about to stomp on somebody and it says you know socialism or communism or whatever on the boot and it shows some young idealistic artist painting like a sunny day picture on the bottom of the boot and it's like yep and of course this guy was like probably in his early 20s or mid 20s he was a really young guy very idealistic yeah. you know we're going to overthrow the capitalist system because then nobody will cut down trees because that's exactly how like have you read for like five minutes about the things that mao did <laughs> when yeah. communism came to china like, yeah um yeah i mean industrialization was brought about if by in russia by the communists not by, yeah. yeah they mao had all they killed all the birds just because like they weren't Chinese enough or something. You know, it's this dumbest <laughs> story. If you don't know about Mao and the birds, it's literally one of the dumbest stories caused a famine because he mm. killed so many birds that there was, you know, the locusts were there next year to eat all the crops because mm. the birds weren't eating the bugs. And it, it's just a total calamity. And like you're going to invoke socialism as, you know, the environmental solution to the world. Are you kidding me? Have you seen what these people do? It's They're out of control. Yeah, definitely. Have you seen Chernobyl? Do you think that that was an environmental success? Because that was caused by not being willing to talk up the chain under a authoritarian system where you're going to now get your head cut off or shot because you screwed up in a small way. And, you know, whoops, I pushed the button too long and the thing got too hot. Oh, don't tell anybody. Ivan might have done it. I didn't do it. And the next thing you know, we're 50 years out or whatever, and the place is still a catastrophe. Exactly. Guys, I need to go. I, we went, we've been going for a while. It's it's been it's been welcome great. to wow. a James and Benjamin video. This I one's short really for us. Super like these like super long conversation, but it was really great. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, I mean, we could maybe organize something again sometimes. That'd be fun. That'd be fun for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for uh, joining. Thanks for proposing this, Jonathan. And yeah, uh, no, it was it was great. great. And, uh, and rationalist and a symbologist kind of collide, come together, and and watch you guys make sense of each other. It's pretty. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's 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 interesting because it's interesting for me. It'll be interesting for me to think about the places where we connect and the places where we don't, and to kind of reflect on that and see how I can think about it, and and then and then formulate my ideas also in that context. So. It was great. Yeah. Well, cheers, gentlemen. All right. Yeah. Have Bye, a good everybody. Day.